Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, good afternoon. If it's afternoon when you're listening, no guarantee of that anymore. Uh, we're going to do something that we are trying to do a little bit more often these days, which is not have guests on the occasional Monday and uh, have your phone calls take the place of guests. Uh, I'll give out the number, although you don't know what I'm going to begin talking. I'll tell you what I'm going to begin talking about so you can decide whether you want to call in in this segment or some other segment. The first thing we're going to talk about today is uh, the controversy arising from the New York Times profile of a white nationalist in Ohio. If you've been following that and you have some thoughts about it, you already know you have some thoughts about it. You can call 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. A little later along in the program, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, a quote that kind of jumped out at me over the weekend. It's actually from a few weeks ago from a David Remnick profile of Hillary Clinton uh, in which Remnick talks about Clinton's belief that we are drifting off into what he calls a perilous state of unreality. And I think that's really true, that increasingly things are so weird in the Trump presidency that we're not treating them as real things anymore. I mean, if you want a a perfect example of kind of Trump-era surrealism, you have it today with two bosses, two directors showing up for the same job in the federal government, a fairly important job uh, at the uh, Consumer uh, Financial Protection Bureau. So uh, we'll talk about that, that perilous state of unreality. And then with the time that's left, we may talk about uh, some of the incursions on freedoms of the press or I don't know. We've got a whole list of other things to talk about, too. A lot of it will depend on you. Um, but I do want to begin with that Horvater story. But before I do that, I want, just want to say, first of all, I hope you had the Thanksgiving you were seeking. Everybody's seeking something a little different at Thanksgiving. But, uh, you know, so I think for me now, it's, it's, it's a meal where I can sit around with a bunch of people who I'm, I enjoy uh, and who like to talk, and we talk for a few hours. And I don't put any more pressure on it than that. It doesn't have to be anything more than that. But that's great. That's nice. You know, it's nice to have that. Anyway, I hope you got what you were looking for from Thanksgiving. And then we act, we shut down for the four-day stretch here. And I do feel as though, to return to the original point I was making, there's something very physically, psychically, and emotionally taxing about the era that we live in. Like, I find it much more exhausting to be a journalist now than I did two or three years ago. It could be because I'm older. But it also could be just because it's really hard. Um, and, and just dealing with this stuff, dealing, you know, with this sort of constant war on reality, uh, constant war for empirical truth. I mean, that's like a whole job we didn't really exactly have to do in the past before we talked about whatever it was we were going to talk about. Anyway, you know, whenever we have some time off, I'm kind of torn because really there's a part of me saying, well, you should just kind of shut down. You should not do the thing that you do at work. And, and you should relax your mind somehow. 
But then you sort of, I, for me, the problem is, well, what is it that I well, What is my job? What do I do at work? And it's basically kind of knowing what's going on, right? I mean, in general, our show is pretty eclectic in its interests. So knowing what's going on would be the catchphrase for the six actual kind of the wheelhouse shows that I will be doing this week. Um, and there's, you know, you can't shut down knowing what's going on. I mean, you can know a little less about what's going on. So maybe I did that. I, there was like times anyway where I sort of carved time out to do things that might fall into the category of knowing a little bit less about what's going on or just listening to music for two hours or something. That Maybe that counts. Anyway, um, I also do want to lead off the show today by saying that it's rare here in Connecticut for people who, like me, are political junkies and keep our ears to the ground. And I mean, one of my many jobs is following politics in Connecticut and writing about politics in Connecticut. It's rare for them to be uh, for there to be such uh, un- unexpected news. George Jepson, who's been uh, Attorney General of Connecticut um, has announced he's not seeking a third term. Um, this is a real, I mean, I talked to three people this morning who absolutely would have known about this in advance under ordinary circumstances, and all three of them were completely blindsided by this. So it's very unusual, and it will shake up um, the whole political spectrum, the whole political landscape here in Connecticut. Uh, so Wednesday morning on The Wheelhouse, I know we'll be talking about this, about how things change and how certain people will now emerge and some people may get out of the governor's race and people that you had half forgotten about maybe be rising from their political <laughs> graves. Anyway, that's all a conversation for Wednesday morning. I hope you join us for that. Right now, yeah, our number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Well, there's just people calling up with stuff. I really do want to get into this New York Times thing, but I guess I'm not constitutionally opposed to uh, to jumping ahead to other topics that we were going to talk about. And uh, Jim, uh, uh, who's calling in, has uh, a topic that was already on our list of things that we wouldn't mind getting into. So, uh, Jim, sure, you're on the air. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, I guess my comment is, is really based on um, the perception of what the press is, uh, some people are saying that there's a tax on the press from, uh, you know, the administration. Uh, some people are saying that, that uh, the press is, is not really giving him a fair shake. And I am by no means a Trump supporter. However, I, I, I would say that the people that are in our press are very dedicated and, and extremely professional. However, I think that the people that are actually Telling them what stories to follow and the tones of those stories is really the issue. Um, the, the controlling of the information and the feelings and uh, innuendo by the press is really kind of over uh, over the top. I mean, every time you turn on the TV, it's nothing but attacks um, in a negative way where these same exact people before Trump got elected were talking about Donald Trump with a smile on their face and didn't care whatsoever about any of the other real candidates and pretty much just, you know, forced us into either voting for a Donald Trump or a Hillary Clinton. They, 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 Asked the other candidates completely so that nobody can even tell you who it was, except for like angry Bernie and crazy Rubio. They showed them with just in the horrorblest uh, disfigured images, and they 
kind of just made us feel that uh, these people were not legitimate candidates, and the only people that they showed smiling was Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And so they kind of set this up for themselves. Uh, so I would say that really we need to be looking at the influence of the press on our elections as well as outside sources. If, if, if the press can, within our country, affect our, our and only give us the information they want us to see, is that really free press? Well, first of all, I do think that that is the free press. <laughs> I think the free press is the free press. And there's, there, I mean, there's no way to regulate the press beyond letting the press do the best job that it thinks that it can. Uh, and, and I mean, you touch upon a subject that's been certainly debated and debated and discussed and discussed both during the campaign and after the campaign. What is the culpability of the press in the rise of Donald Trump? Um, you include the rise of Hillary Clinton in that. Um, I'm not really sure that those are the same questions. Uh, I think that they play out very differently. In the case of Trump, there's no question at all that certain television entities in particular, but maybe all of us in general, realize that people, the people we will broadly construe this as the people, <laughs> the, the audience and the potential audience was much more interested in Trump than it was in anything else. And so Trump was making the cash registers ring. And so you had kind of a vicious cycle there, right? You had, I mean, you know, television executives like Les Moonves and Jeff Zucker have acknowledged that Trump was good for ratings, good for money. Um, now, why was Trump good for ratings? Why was Trump good for their bottom line? Well, Trump was good for ratings and good for their bottom line because people liked watching him on television a lot more than they liked watching Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Rand Paul on television. They liked watching Trump. Uh, now, they liked him for all kinds of garish entertainment-based uh, reasons that had relatively little to do with his fitness for office. But in, in some ways, we're all kind of enablers. You know, I mean, we certainly tried to do a lot of cautionary shows about Trump during the campaign on this particular program, um, to a point where a lot of Trump people were complaining about us. But we thought it was important for people to understand what the potential menace was there. Um, but that you could say, well, that still counts as Trump coverage. You covered Trump a lot more than you covered uh, other other candidates. And you'd be right about that. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know how to tease all that out. Certainly, the press is not exempt from blame and from criticism for the rise of Donald Trump. And, and a lot of that did have to do with the fact that people were really interested in Donald Trump. So uh, some of the more profit-oriented institutions of the press thought, well, so let's give them what they want. Um, I mean, you know, you didn't used to be able to sell advertising on political debates for a lot of money, but the rates went up with those, uh, those Republican debates because Trump made them so, quote, entertaining, uh, unquote, or pick another word, gripping, maybe. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know. But, but yeah, you still, you can't excuse the, the press from that. But the press is also not in the business of giving people what they don't want. Uh, at least they don't do as well financially if they give people what they don't want. So let's admit that we're all a little bit enablers there. I think with the story of Clinton is a little bit different. I think a lot of that happened behind the scenes. If in fact, I mean, look, there were a handful of other candidates that before Bernie got in, you would be hard pressed to name them. Uh, it's uh, I believe their names were <laughs> O'Malley, Webb, Chafee. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to remember their names. But, but in fact, there were other candidates seeking the d Democratic nomination, but not many. And we now, I think, have some sense that there was 
uh, a way in which in terms of fundraising and how can I say this nicely, kind of engineering the favor of the Democratic National Committee, um, Clinton obviously had some real advantages over other kinds of conventional candidates. The one candidate she couldn't really control or intimidate was Bernie Sanders. That's why he got, I don't know how much the press had to do with that, though. Um, I, I, you know, there are different ways of describing that. I'm not sure how, how much the press had to do with that. I do want to say, just to get to, I, I thought you were going to bring up something else, which was that notion that Trump is at war with the press. Um, I think today you know, we have had some pretty salient examples of that. Uh, today, we or over the weekend, uh, we've had his very unflattering tweet about CNN International at precisely the time when uh, Vladimir Putin is instituting uh, a new set of state controls for the press overseas. Uh, it it's, it's, was inflammatory enough to engender, among other things, uh, a tweet from General Michael Hayden, who is certainly a uh, both a military and an intelligence guy with pretty strong conservative credentials. Um, he's clearly talking about this Trump tweet, and he says, if this is who we are or, what, or who we are becoming, I have wasted 40 years of my life. Until now, it was not possible for me to conceive of an American president capable of such an outrageous assault on truth, a free press, or the First Amendment. So, you know, Jim, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd be a little, I'm a little uncomfortable with your level of moral equivalence about this. There is no question in my mind that we have a president of the United States who is actively hostile towards the press in a way that encroaches on the implicit and explicit guarantees of the Constitution. Um, this is a guy who um, feels as though being at war with the press, calling the press's credibility into question on a daily basis is part of his job. Um, and it's important that we continue drawing a series of bright lines. I said during the campaign, I think it was either after either one of the debates or one of the big rallies, I said, I think, I don't know where I said it. <laughs> Maybe I said it on the wheelhouse. But let's say I said it on the wheelhouse. I just said, you know, does anybody have trouble imagining scenarios in which this guy, if he were president, would lock up reporters, which we know goes on all over the world. And it'll go on in this country from time to time, usually on a contempt of court type of thing, a James Risen kind of thing where somebody won't reveal their sources. But I mean, we don't typically lock people up because we don't like what they're reporting and what they're saying. And, and I, I mean, I just I look at this man, and I have no question in my mind that he is capable of doing that. Um, and we have that's why we have to draw broad, broad, uh, bright lines. That's why we have to kind of lay down the law and say, yes, we understand you don't like the way you get reported on a lot of the time. That's fine. That's part of the bargain. Guess what? Barack Obama didn't like the way he got reported on. And George W. Bush didn't like the way he got reported on. And Bill Clinton didn't like the way that he got reported on. But they didn't say the kinds of things that you're saying, the things that cross the line not from just mere resentment and hostility towards what seems to be a really aggressive anti-press posture. I mean, this tweet uh, in, in particular over the weekend seemed like an invitation uh, to people in other countries, despots in other countries, starting with Putin, but not necessarily confined to him, whether it's Erdogan or Duterte or any of these other guys that he likes. It was, seemed like a president kind of saying, well, I don't like these people any more than you do. So you've got a problem with CNN International. You know, I mean, and I just, you know, we can't live that way. Uh, I know there's a certain amount of self-interest when somebody from journalism says to you, um, 
well, we can't allow that to happen, but we really can't. We won't. It'll be hard for us to get our country back if we let his hostility towards the press take uh, an even more solid shape than it already has. So I, I don't know. It's too long an answer to your uh, call. So um, all right. So here's Greg from Woodbury. I guess I'm just sort of going to let people call it whatever they want to call it for a while. I do at some point. Maybe we'll take a break after this. I'd like to switch over to this. Speaking of the press, New York Times article, which has engendered uh, so much concern. But Greg, you're on the air. Yes. Thank you, Colin. I am uh, very concerned about all of this, and I think that. It's part of the Republicans' plan. They're secretly enjoying Trump's tweets because they're going to use it against him after the uh, tax cuts and, and uh, you know, elimination of, of uh, Obamacare and everything else. They're going to suddenly, especially the Christian right, uh, um, Congress people, uh, suddenly they're going to become moral and say, oh, Trump's been doing this. Look what he said. Oh, we have to get rid of him. And then we're going to be stuck with Pence. And I think that uh, Mike Pence is more dangerous than Trump because everybody knows that Trump is crazy and he doesn't understand how government works. But Mike Pence is something entirely different. And that with Pence in control after Trump is impeached to make the Republicans look good, then, um, uh, you know, the Democrats are not going to end up with what they want in next November's elections. And I think it's just, uh, you know, deplorable that this happens. And I really don't want to see Trump impeached. What I want to see is uh, enough time to go by to see how totally complicit so many people in the Republican Party were. And I don't suppose this is possible, but I'd love to see the uh, the uh, presidential election that uh, uh, happened where Trump and Pence got in delegitimized. All right. And, well, um, um, something so, else happened. So. Yeah. So uh, let me just quickly uh, add a comment or two about that. Then we're going to take a break. I want to mention our number is 860-275-7266. It's just you and me, uh, me and you phone callers today. I am going to try to switch topics uh, in the next segment. We'll see whether that works or not. Uh, I do want to talk about this very controversial profile of the uh, white nationalist in the New York Times. But just since Greg just said the stuff that he said, let me just say um, uh, part of that, I really I have to say that I don't think that the Republicans have some kind of unified strategy for dealing with Donald Trump. I don't think that they have a plan to wait through the tax breaks and then impeach him. Uh, whatever they have to do about Donald Trump, and it'll probably be a precipitated by whatever his resistance is to the activities of Robert, of Robert Mueller or any other kind of standard, recognizable, democratic, institutional processes that go against him. So as some of his confederates become get, get indicted, and if people very close to him are indicted, I'm thinking in particular of his son Donald Jr. and of Jared Kushner, um, sooner or later we will see Donald Trump in full rebellion against Mueller and against this process. And at that point, Republicans, starting with Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, they're going to have to do a full gut check at that point. They're going to have to decide how much of that they're willing to take. Um, but it won't be fun for them. No matter what happens, I mean, if we move towards some kind of constitutional crisis, some kind of locking of horns between the executive and legislative branches, it's not going to be fun. Nobody's looking forward to it. It's not regarded as some kind of 
um, desired, expedient way of getting Mike Pence to be president. It's nothing like that. And I think we have to face the fact that if it does come to something like that, it's going to be a nightmare for this country. It's going to be a very, very dark time, and we won't get through it easily, whatever it is. Um, and, and, and we, as Greg points out, may not wind up with the result that some people would really like anyway. So, so brace for that anyway. Uh, all right. Our number is 860-275-7266. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about journalism and about the racists and things like that uh, after this break. Martin Luther King is spinning in his grave to see a bigoted bully taking the stage and he calls upon us to be faithful to the ideas he died for in another age for the times they are All right. Welcome back. This is one of these uh, just you and me shows. We have no guests booked. This is intentional. We could have booked guests, um, but I'm interested in hearing from you. We don't get the callers on the air enough. And there's some things that I just want to talk about um, with you. Uh, our number is 860-275-7266. We're going to spend a few minutes, and we already have Dana from New Britain online to uh, call up, up about it. There may be others. Uh, about a weekend article in the New York Times. It appeared, I believe, in the Sunday version of the physical paper. And in fact, well, let me just set it up a little bit more so we can get uh, to Dana. But So it, it's an article. It's a profile uh, of a kind of low-level white nationalist uh, living in Ohio, um, his name is Tony Hoveter. Hoveter. I'm not sure how you say his name. Um, and the profile, um, although it uh, deals extensively with his noxious uh, beliefs and how he got to them, um, it's also sort of about his life. And he owns cats and he shops at the supermarket and he, he likes music and he's uh, very much into uh, heavy metal. He likes Seinfeld. It, it says that he listens to <laughs> that he and his wife, he just got married. Uh, and he and his wife really love uh, national public radio, which certainly flies in the face of everything everybody thinks about who we are and who likes us and who doesn't. But anyway, uh, this is sort of a lot of these kind of quotidian details anyway of this guy's life. And it has uh, troubled people uh, a lot. Uh, uh, they don't want to know that he and his fiance uh, registered at Target and asked for a muffin pan. Um, and they want to know why the New York Times w would even want to tell us these things. It's, if you saw it in the physical paper, if you're one of these superannuated people like me who occasionally reads this, the physical paper, it's kind of interesting because on page two of the, uh, of the physical paper, there's an article by the author of this article. Uh, and this page two uh, piece basically talks about how there's a hole in the heart of the story that he wasn't able to really figure out how Hoveter got to where he got, what made Tony Hoveter into who he is right now, uh, and that he followed up. And he tried to make some, he tried to have another phone conversation with him to see if he could understand it better, but he kind of really didn't ultimately. Um, find the answer to that question. Uh, and, and so then anyway, so you read that. <laughs> That's on page two. And then like on page 16 or something, there's the actual article. It's just sequentially anyway, it didn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, all right. So anyway, that I've now set it up. Uh, we've got a few people who want to call in uh, and have called in. Our number, 860-275-7266. Let's start with uh, Dana or Dana, as the case may be. Hi, you're on the air. Okay, uh, well, it's not exactly what I thought it was going to be. I, um, I thought you were going to mention um, 
I knew there were recent articles in the Atlantic Monthly about Andrew Anglin, and mm-hmm. uh, they were doing uh, also an article about uh, in the New Yorker magazine about uh, a guy known as Mike Enoch. He yep. did a radio show, and I, I read that one. We're going to go into that. Uh, I don't know this person in particular that you're mentioning, mm-hmm. but I notice a pattern here when it comes to this kind of analysis. It seems like there's always this bent to try to psychologize, if that's a word, you know, the the beliefs or how these people came to these beliefs, as if something went wrong in their childhood, you know, or, you know, is there some kind of issue, you know, what what was it that led them astray from, you know, liberal modernity? And I think, you know, really, that's kind of, uh, it's kind of telling because it just goes to show that, you know, there's no supposition or assumption that maybe these people are honest. Maybe they really have recognizable grievances that are legitimate, you know, depending on the person, depending on how that message is stated, you know, and maybe they're just honestly worried about the direction of their ethnic people or race, whatever you want to call it, in the nation in the modern era. And I think that's perfectly legitimate based on how they deliver that. So, you know, it doesn't always have to be, you know, why does the press try to deconstruct you know, was he, uh, did he have allergies? Was he, uh, you know, where where did he go wrong? I, yeah, you know, I, I know the phenomenon you're talking about. I, I know. I, I will say this, that this would be an easier conversation for you and me to have had you read the Hovader piece. Which, by the way, the reason I'm bringing it up is it really occasioned a storm of criticism. And Lee from Sandy Hook will come to you in just a second. And, and people who I really respect, Ezra Klein and Nate Silver and people like that, had real problems with this piece. I kind of didn't have as many problems with it. I didn't have as many problems with it. And one thing that I will say to you, uh, Dana, is that it doesn't do the thing that you're talking about. And I think that's one of the reasons that people have a problem with it. So it doesn't really rely uh, on a Hollywood turn, as they say in in screenplay writing. Uh, There isn't a moment where this guy's father runs away with the the family's Jewish babysitter and he therefore becomes this terrible anti-Semite. He is a terrible (laughs) anti-Semite. And the article calls him a a bigot. uses that word, a bigot. He's absolutely a bigot. Uh, Talks about how his rhetoric on on the internet is uglier than some of the rhetoric that he would use in a face-to-face conversation. But it doesn't try to get at the why of it. And I think it's actually a strength of the article that it doesn't do that. I mean, Dana, I think you and I probably do disagree (laughs) on certain aspects of this because there are there are ways in which someone's white nationalist grievances can never quite achieve legitimacy if they're directed uh, at other groups in an angry or hateful way, uh, where, which is certainly the case with this guy. Or if they evoke longingly um, uh, other movements of this kind, you know, I mean, you know, if your flashing swastikas around and stuff like that, you can never really achieve legitimacy. You might have a legitimate problem that you need to see redressed or you want to see redressed, but you can't be legitimate if you're trafficking uh, in hatred towards other groups or affectionately remembering uh, the the Nazi era in Germany or diminishing or minimizing the Holocaust or claiming, you know, didn't claim so many victims, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, You can't be legitimate. Um, However, I think it's very interesting to know about somebody like this guy. Uh, I have a little bit more to say about it, but I want to get Lee on the air. If you did read this article and you had a specific reaction or you're aware of the backlash and you have a reaction to that, 860-275-7266. Lee, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, I'll start out by saying I have read the article. Uh, My wife made mention uh, to something about, you know, 
things blowing up about a New York Times article, and I, I wondered if it was about this. I have not read any of the criticism, so uh, that's where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, in a way, this is what America needs to understand, that this has been there all along in this country. And I told my uh, twins, who were seniors in high school, that the morning after the election, I was at a loss for words, but I said, if there's a silver lining in this election and the hate and the bigotry that has come out and the people that this has unearthed, the silver lining is that we are now aware, and hopefully this is waking people up, that we're not past some post-racial divide, even though people have voting rights um, in this country, and that this hate has always been there. And just Trump and the administration has just allowed these people to now voice their grievances uh, out loud for everybody to hear. So I think it's important to know that this still exists in our country, and there really hasn't been a whole lot of change in this country. And um, there's a lot of people that have been suffering through decades of this. And uh, a lot of people, I think, in the white male power structure have, uh, you know, just chose to assume that things are better for everybody, when in reality, I don't think that's the case. All right. um, Thanks for your call. Ali, I agree with a lot of what you just said. Let me just say one more thing about this. And I think some other people calling in who may want to talk about this. Um, I, I thought that one of the strengths of this article was that it didn't produce some kind of expert or series of experts who could come forward and say, well, this is why this happened. These are the causes uh, of this. And I find myself thinking about David Foster Wallace's famous um, This is Water uh, commencement address, which I think he gave at Kenyon. Um, and and uh, he talks in it. Uh, the the uh, the title is based on a uh, a joke about fish, and he he talks about the meaning of the joke, and he says that the, the meaning is that quote the most obvious ubiquitous important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. Uh, stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day to day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have life or death importance, and and I actually feel like. Reading the article about this guy, Hovater, and then thinking about the question, why, I found myself saying, thinking, what if there is no why? What if, there, what, if the, what caused him to become this really disturbing person with these really toxic, reprehensible beliefs um, and, and, and is almost nothing? It's just the way he processed the background radiation of his life. And, and I think we do the same thing. We have the same problem sometimes when we look at, a, to me, a very similar uh, breed of cat, although they, I'm sure they would, each of them would abhor this comparison. But we look when we looked at at self radicalized ISIS sympathizers who create acts of violence, who commit acts of violence, we often go searching for the same thing. What's the pivot point? What's the turning point? And a lot of times, I think there's nothing. It is, as I say, you know, information and music and people you meet and and things that go on in your life constitute sometimes a kind of background radiation as opposed to a set of really def- definable plot points. So looking for it, it may be impossible to find. It, it may be too finely grained to be detectable as a specific thing. And, and I thought this article did kind of a good job that way, that ultimately we have to accept the fact that there are people who, for reasons that we will never understand, process the same set of life data points as other people in a completely different and horrifying way. 
Um, and, you know, I mean, I, th- I find myself thinking Hannah Arendt would understand this article and she would also understand, I, I mean, I'm sitting here speaking for Hannah Arendt. I'm just saying this is what I suspect. She would also understand the necessity or, or the worthiness anyway of writing it and reading it. I also want to say it's not a perfect piece of journalism. There's some things that uh, the writer could have done to vastly improve this piece of journalism. But I'm surprised at the number of people who feel as though, well, I don't know, we may be hearing some of those from some of those people. So um, uh, why don't we do that? Um, all right. So our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. We're going to go to Brandon in New Britain. Hi, Brandon. You're on the air. Hey, how's it going? Okay. So, yeah, my main problem with the article just seems to be that, like, the way they present this person is uh, just as a very normal person. Uh, when you contrast it with like the way they portray some people who are victims of police brutality, uh, you see a lot of like uh, you see like a very notable difference. It seems like uh, like they're very uh, kind of pessimistic, I suppose. They seem with like the victims of police brutality, but they're very like humanizing with like this guy who's putting forth a very violent ideology. So I kind of see like the issue right there. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, and I, I know that one of the big criticisms uh, has ha, has been, uh, I've seen it on the New York Times uh, comment threads anyway, that when they were writing about Michael Brown, they said Mr. Brown was no angel, and they, they, people are still angry about that. Um, I, I, I will say this. First of all, I think, I, I don't know how much pejorative language people need. People, apparently really smart people like Ezra Klein, need more pejorative language. This, the writer does say early in the piece, this guy is absolutely a bigot. I mean, he says that. Um, he, he talks about the problems his wife has when people call Mr. Hovader a bigot, Mr. Hovader, comma, who is absolutely a bigot, comma, a bigot, something like, oh, I, I don't have the article in front of me. It's, it's something along those lines. And he does use words like ugly to describe Hovader's rhetoric on, on the Internet. I mean, and I also feel like, I don't know, I go back to a show that we did a long, long time ago. I did a show with 9-11 truthers. These are people who um, who believe that, and this was at a time when this was an even more exotic belief than it is now when we have, you know, an Obama birther in the White House. It maybe doesn't even seem quite as odd. But at the time, there were these people, there are these people who believe that the story of 9-11 has been told completely wrong, that the government probably had much more complicity, warning, knowledge, that there are unexplained mysteries that if can only be explained by the government having had a bigger role, the American government having a bigger role in 9-11. So, and they're called 9-11 truthers. And there's a lot of them. Uh, and so I did a show with them uh, over the objections of one of my producers at the time. We just wanted no part of this. And one of the things people said was, well, you didn't present the other side. And I thought, well, the other side is just what most, you know, 99% of, not 99%, the other side is the settled understanding of this, that we were attacked by a small group of terrorists who were backed by al-Qaeda. You know, I mean, the settled idea is the 9-11 Commission report. And I didn't really feel a need to put somebody on there to say, well, that's not really what, you know, most people believe. Um, Because you already know that. You already know what most people believe. And, and I similarly don't feel like when you're doing a story about a white nationalist, you have to have some kind of hall monitor in the story constantly saying, this is bad, this is objectionable, this is toxic. We know that. Presumably, we know that. We know that this guy's beliefs are reptilian and horrible. We don't need to be told that every three paragraphs. Um, the Times is essentially treating us as adults. The question is, given that these are reprehensible, disgusting ideas— 
you know, there's a weird disconnect between that and this guy who, you know, was living a life that would otherwise be recognizable to most of us. So what's going on there? This is the guy next door. This is the Nazi next door. It's not a piece that says, oh, Nazis are people and we should treat them as people. It's no, there's like there's somebody in aisle three of the supermarket where you shop and you're both looking at the same box of rigatoni, except that you believe what you believe in. He believes this other completely weird, dark, fascistic reality, uh, and you have no idea because he's a guy you see at the supermarket every week, or he's, or it's somebody who works at your hair salon, or, or whatever. That these people they don't live in some on some weird island of misfit fascists. They live among us. They shop with us and stuff like that. All right, so I'll stop babbling and put some callers on the air. Here's John from Milford. Hi, John. Yep, uh, something happened here. Let me try it again. Hi, John. You're on the air. John from Milford. Hi, Colin. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Sure. I was wondering uh, why we even give these people a minute of airtime or any uh, media um, at all because we defeated this ideology in World War II, also in the Civil War, and we continue on giving the media time, and, and we're kind of representing them. Just let them be what they are and, and get them out of the media and ignore them, and they'll get smaller and weaker. If you keep on putting them on the, inner, on the air, I believe they'll get stronger and stronger, and people will start believing that crap. I mean, Donald Trump said that we can't lift a stick to these, this ideology. We put the full U.S military might against this ideology in the war in World War II. I don't understand. Well, let me say this. Um, the examples you give, I think, could be uh, used to illustrate the opposite point, John. Uh, you say, well, we defeated this ideology in the Civil War first the first time. Well, we didn't really, right? We know what happened in Reconstruction. We know about the Jim Crow era. We know that although slavery was abolished as an institution, uh, the people who were the grand upholders of slavery did everything in their power to keep as many of its qualities intact as possible. And, and probably our failure to talk even more directly about that than we did contributed to their ability to create things like Jim Crow and create all the things that necessitated uh, a, a civil rights movement 100 years later in the 1960s. Uh, and I would say that, you know, the fact that the, the person who occupies the White House right now occupies the White House and was not disqualified from the presidency because uh, of his these beliefs illustrates that we didn't win World War II quite as decisively either, that these ideologies persist in our environment, uh, that, that racism, anti-Semitism and, and the new fashion uh, anti-Muslimism, uh, anti-Islamophobia, I guess is what we actually call it. Um, you know, they're there. Uh, they're absolutely there. Uh, you can be a standard bearer of them and not be disqualified from office. Uh, it, it, I, I think it's more an argument to me that this is stuff we need to talk about even more than we've already talked about it. And I think we also have to make a decision. Like, if, was Charlottesville a big deal or not? If Charlottesville was a big deal, and I think it was a big deal, and I think a lot of people think it was a big deal, then we have to do the kind of aftercare from Charlottesville. I think this article 
about a guy who was there in Charlottesville. Who the heck is he? And how did he turn into that guy who showed up at Charlottesville? If we're going to agree that that was a big deal, that Trump's comments after Charlottesville were a big deal, then we have to agree that, yeah, we have to expend more journalistic energy understanding these people. All right, we're going to take a break, uh, and we'll come back after this. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Ashley Taylor, and the part of Bill Curry was played by George Jepson. On tomorrow's show, the rise and fall of progressive rock. And now, back to Colin. Special treat for people who listen to tomorrow's show. Uh, John Dantoski, uh, very much a prisoner of his love for a progressive rock for parts of his life. Anyway, will be one of our guests. All right, so um, we got some. We've had some really interesting calls here, and we've got some very interesting calls on the screen. But let me say this: they've all been from men, and I just have, well, on my screen. I've got John, Michael, Josh, Bill. So I'm going to do some affirmative action. If a woman calls up, uh, she will go to the top of the list, uh, no matter what she wants to talk about. <laughs> um, and our number is eight six zero. Two seven five seven two six six eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. I love what you guys have had to say. Hey, some of you have challenged me. Some of you, uh, anyway, you've all been great. But uh, I went and just want to talk to guys on the show. Do we eight six zero two seven five seven two six six? Give us a call. All right. So I'm going to take John from Bark Hampstead next. Hi, John. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Sorry, I'm a guy. <laughs> That's okay. But I was hoping I'd get in quick enough to play uh, Bill Car- Curry's part today, but. Just it. missed it, but uh, I think it, you know you're uh, you're overlooking how strong your point is though about uh, I didn't read the Times article, but the, this guy is the guy that's next door. He's your neighbor, and um, the problem I think the fundamental problem we're having is that um, and and I'm the listen more guy by the way. Oh yeah, I figured I thought yeah, that yeah. might be you. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, we really cannot as citizens talk to each other on the street in the cafes because. Uh, because why? But we had this town meeting in Brockhampstead, and it was it was an anomaly because a fellow uh, put forth an initiative that the town would abide by the spirit of the Paris Accord. Mm-hmm. You know, we're a small town of 3,600 people. But what do we have to do with the Paris Accord? So uh, 70 people showed up, 70 or 80, and you could hear the pitchforks in the rooms rattling, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, and the room divided like parting of the Red Sea, and uh, literally half. The people in the room didn't want to allow us to even talk about it, mm-hmm. and it became very heated, very difficult, very complex, and we just struggled. I mean, these are, we we live together, we know each other, <laughs> and it's, it was a rare situation in such a hot button issue. Uh, I mean, you might include the Nazi thing in something like this um, that would come up, and we would discuss it as citizens. Well, we couldn't discuss it, and finally, someone who didn't, I happened to 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 believe in the uh, global warming uh, effect, but a person that didn't said, well, we all believe in clean air and clean water. Mm-hmm. Well, that was, a, that, was a, that was a unifying point, right? Right. But we couldn't talk. 
Right. Well, I I think you're making a great point. And let me just sort of contextualize you for uh, people a a little bit. John's a guy who emailed me over the course of the campaign a lot. And what he was doing was uh, anybody that he encountered, I mean, just anybody he encountered, waiting in line or somebody who shows up to fix his furnace or whatever, he would just say something like, what do you think about this election? And just let them talk. And a lot of times they said things that were completely at odds with what he thought. uh, And a lot of the time he didn't. But when I... I collected up all of John's emails and put them in a folder, and I read, reread them after the election. And I thought, if I had just read these emails, and 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 very little else, I would have had a much better idea of how this election was going. Because John, you know, without kind of loading it up with values, uh, just asked a very sort of neutral, generic-sounding questions and pe- question, and people told him in very interesting ways what they felt. Uh, and I think one of the things that we're that that hounds us a little bit and blocks us a little bit is we're afraid of hearing. We're really afraid of hearing from the guy in aisle three with us that he believes something we find completely horrifying, that that understandably is a very terrifying experience to see this person who's dressed kind of like you, although if he rolled up his sleeves, his tattoos might be really different. But otherwise, he's dressed like you, looks kind of like you, buying the same products you buy, but he's, as far as you're concerned, an evil nut. And, and, you know, I mean, because of that, I think we have trouble talking and listening and accepting each other. And I don't think so I'm not saying anybody should accept Tony Horvader as he currently is constituted. But that whole idea of learning a little bit more anyway and not being afraid to learn a little bit more, uh, I think, is a, not a bad idea. Uh, all right. So we've uh, got time to take a few more calls. I said affirmative action. We've got Mary from Stonington on the line. Hi, Mary. You're on the air. Oh, hi. I was just bringing up the fact that some of the people I, I've searched around about about the, um, in the internet, I searched around a lot to see what was going on. I think it was in Charlottesville, Mm -hmm. where where those guys had those tiki torches. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the pictures there, to me, look staged. And I'm going to mention two specific people. There were two people who were supposed to be Klansmen, Mm -hmm. and they uh, they were photographed all over. They were all over the internet. But there's just two of them, and they're, um... Their clan outfits don't look legitimate. I well, think they were just playing, you know, coming out there as in a masquerade. Yeah, I think, you know, absent some proof of that, we really can't go in that direction. In other words, I'm not really sure exactly what an official clan outfit <laughs> looks like. I think I think an awful lot of them are DIY. Um, but... Um, Look, you're right that a lot of the things you see on the Internet are not true, not real. But I think it's kind of settled history at this point that there were white supremacists in Charlottesville, that they were there for the express purpose of expressing their dissatisfaction uh, with uh, attitudes towards Civil War statues in very much the rhetoric, vocabulary vocabulary and imagery uh, of the white supremacist and white nationalist movement, that the things that they were chanting were were anti-Semitic, uh, that the, the imagery that they were using was often connected to either the Klan or the Nazi party. I don't think I don't think anybody's really questioning that anymore. And we have more than just stuff on the Internet. There was plenty of actual filmed news coverage. So, yes, be skeptical at, at, at times, be agnostic at other times when you're looking at stuff on the Internet. But it really is possible to establish certain things as truths. Uh, All right. So we have uh, time for one last call here. uh, And I'm sorry for anybody who's been sitting on hold for a while. Uh, We didn't get to everybody today. I'm going to let Raina from Hamden have the last word. Hi, Raina. You're on the air. 
Oh, boy. So you got three beats. I'm a woman, I'm a Jew, and I'm a rabbi. Oh, wow. And and no no Jew is surprised with this. Mm-hmm. No Jew, every dude knows, wherever you live, somebody's going to hate you just because you're Jewish. Mm-hmm. Like, like, somebody knows that. Black people know that. I'm with two black guys. They know that. <laughs> yep. And there's nothing... And there's nothing I can do. Do you think there's anything to be accomplished by? See, I think articles about those people are still worth writing and worth reading so that we understand that they're there, what their latent attitudes are, how those attitudes might blow up into into acts of violence at times. So, I mean, I want all that reported on. But are, do you, are you feeling like it's such a fact of life? It's so ingrained in reality. Why bother even doing journalism about it? I think that... The thing I adore about America, and I love America, I have dual citizenship, is if this guy wants to be a Nazi, go for it. I don't have to have dinner for it with him. Right. I don't have to put my kids with He's allowed to be a Nazi. He's not allowed to put a swastika on my door. He's, he's not allowed to do anything to me. But if he's a Nazi, you know, I'm going to share dinner with him. But on the same note, an Orthodox male rabbi won't come to my synagogue. Because you're in a Reform synagogue? I'm a woman. You're a woman? Yeah. Ah. All right. Yeah, so, yeah. So, like, I just feel, I feel you're a brilliant commentator. I really appreciate you. And I think most of what you say applies. This is, he's got that right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and I, I would rather have him be that Nazi with my blessing, than live in a place where he can't be. Right. All right. Well, listen. Thanks for calling, uh, Reina, and thanks for getting us a Scrabble triple word score for diversity too. We appreciate that. I guess I got time. I could, uh, Jessica, if you can make it super concise, uh, we can squeeze you in here. We got sixty seconds left. Okay, thanks. Sure. Um, the first thing that I just um, thank you to Raina because she's saying basically the same thing that I was going to say. But what was disturbing to me about the Times article was not the article itself, mm-hmm. but the so-called left reaction that was calling for the Times to have really like called this guy out and said what a reprehensible human being he was instead of you know exploring it from a humanity standpoint. The whole point behind Nazis is they want to dehumanize everybody who's not like them. So why would we go ahead and do the same thing when we are trying to cover their story? Yeah, I I, I, I kind of agree with I mean I, I certainly agree with you that dehumanize. I mean the whole idea of the article I think was to sort of say, all right, so what's the human side of this person? Not to suggest that that redeems him in any way or or lessens our disgust at his ideas, but what does it mean that he's a human being? And what does that mean about the other human beings around us too? I keep coming to that back to that idea that you know the other person who feels this way is the person, the colorist at the salon you go to or the service manager you really like at the at the place where you get your car serviced or it's it's somebody else around you and you just don't know it. All you know is a different human side of them. And 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 you don't even know if you if you found that out about them, you'd be so puzzled as to how they got that way. They just don't seem like that at all. And that's one of life's mysteries worth pondering. Thanks for listening today and thanks for doing this little experiment with us.